0: Welcome to the Productivity Show by Asian Efficiency, helping you do more and be better. And now here's your host, Zachary Sexton.
1: You are tuned into the Productivity Show by Asian Efficiency. My name is Zachary Sexton, and today I have with me Dr. Andrew Hill.
0: Welcome. Thanks, Zachary. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I am really excited to have you on. You're an interesting guy. <laughs> uh, I, I've listened to a number of podcasts that you've been on, so I don't know if other listeners out there might have uh, heard your name before, but you've got a wide-ranging career. Uh, you're a street sweeper, maybe a lifeguard, a bodyguard. You currently work with people who are struggling with addiction. You, you've got a non-traditional way of, of doing that. Also, work with people who have struggled with uh, attention and... ADHD disorders, and you are um, a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from mm-hmm. UCLA, and are an expert at uh, attention and cognitive performance. So that's what I'm excited to talk to you about is the cognitive performance piece and um, and all the different areas that that go with it, whether it be mm-hmm. mindfulness or meditation or uh, nootropics. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about your history with uh, ecstatic shamanism, okay. <laughs> perhaps. Sure. But uh, but that's that's sort of a, a brief recap of what I understand. But um, please let people know who you are, what you're about, and and how you how you sure. like to give value to the world.
0: Yeah. So as, as you said, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, which means I sort of work at the intersection of mind and brain, or uh, really how. Um, the the human experience of our mind, the things that we care about or or where I I sort of focus my efforts on things like human performance, uh, stress, attention, um, getting control of our behavior and sort of heading for a a peak performance, if you will, uh, perspective. Regardless if we're talking about uh, brains that have serious deficits or if we're talking about brains that are pretty good, I sort of view um, our, our ability to to modulate or, or enhance plasticity is much broader than many of us know, and we can uh, you know do lots of things to affect brains. And so the the, the, the deeper I get into working with people, um, the less I think about you know does somebody have a developmental disability or ADHD or seizures or alcoholism or anxiety, and it just becomes hey you know let's look at your brain and help you change your brain to be more productive you know less stress, better sleep, more attention. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a research scientist, not a psychologist or a medical doctor, but I end up working in a clinical or a sort of one-on-one uh, sort of setting most of the time because I'm really helping individuals evaluate their own brain performance and then trying to come up with uh, strategies, training techniques, lifestyle hacks to affect their uh, performance and, of course, productivity. Awesome.
1: What got you interested into this field? Because I, yeah. like I said, you've got a, You've got a very diverse background. What got you into yeah. trying to figure out the brain and and uh, and optimizing that?
0: Well, you know, I was one of these kids, probably you know, forty years ago, where I would take everything apart that had screws just to sort of see, you know, what was under the covers, and um, that sort of translated into brains, you know, long term. Although there was possibly a formative uh, event. When I was in, uh, I guess about eighth grade, um, my younger brother, uh, we were living in, in New England at the time, and my younger brother, uh, it was the middle of winter, and he sledded out into the street and got hit by a car, and um, was in the hospital uh, and was in a coma for many weeks and had this, you know, profound uh, change in his consciousness. Obviously, he was, you know, not not responsive. He was in a coma. And as a, as a young person, this was kind of baffling to me that there could be a fairly minor brain injury that produced dramatic changes in uh, uh, human nests, if you will. So, to give your listeners a, a bit of a respite, there is a happy ending. He's fairly intact as an adult. This was, you know, he was young enough that his brain shrugged off most of the damage. Uh, it tends to happen with brains. The younger you are when you receive an injury, a brain injury, the less focal damage you have. And you may have some sort of overall lowering of brain function, but there's not usually a specific deficit. And as an, uh, an older person, injuries produce focal deficits, specific features and, and resources that we might use. So, you know, I was a young person in, in grade school and my brother got, you know, severely brain injured. And uh, sort of seeing him lie there in the hospital bed and not be conscious was baffling that, you know, the day before he had been annoying me like he usually did. And uh you know the very next day there was just sort of he wasn't there essentially, and it took many, many weeks for him to uh come out of this coma, and then many years of uh you know, doing various types of uh, rehab before he was sort of fully functional again and This was really you know somewhat profound uh, uh an impact on me you know i i I've, I've always worked in uh, health and human services uh or high tech I sort of go back and forth when I was you know a, a younger person. And this idea that the brain is a black box, we don't really understand, and we don't really have much control over or any real sort of um, way of talking about it many times really impacted me and it really, really struck me. I mean, if you went to the doctor with a, you know, uh, an arm that wasn't working, they took an x-ray, found a fracture, they would say, oh, look, broken arm. That's not your fault, right? Here's a cast. Here's some physical therapy. Here's the plan for getting over this. But brain stuff um, is much less uh, visible. And so often the things that we struggle with, be it profound things like traumatic head injuries or, um, you know, still profound things like seizures or migraines or, you know, less dramatic things like ADHD or anxiety or sleep issues, these things are often seen as if they are sort of willpower issues. Oh, you didn't focus in school, little Jimmy? Well, you know, you're going to be punished now. When it's not willful, there's this physiology limit sometimes on our behavior, our performance, our capacity. And if we don't take into account the brain's uh, function, the actual physiological bounding of this stuff, then we end up sort of having a stigma or blame for brain stuff, and that includes everything from you know actual mental illness, where you're sort of getting the stigma of being depressed or having you know OCD or you know, alcoholism or something, um, or the just the normal day to day variability in function, where you're you know people might struggle with being productive or feel like they're getting enough done being overwhelmed, you know, there's physiology that is directly translatable to resources. So if you consider the physiology, you can affect the resources and you can really help people change their brains very quickly. And that's what drew me to the field was this idea that in a very, very short amount of time, you can profoundly change the brain. I mean, very little changes the brain beyond a few very specific interventions. And kind of brain changes you get from doing, you know, learning or psychotherapy or things like that, those changes occur on the on a time scale of weeks, months, years. But things like neurofeedback, mindfulness, nootropics, these change the brain uh, in a time course that is minutes potentially. And I've gradually and, and sort of more progressively gotten deeper and deeper into this idea that we need to empower people to Think about their brains. Think about exercise. Think about fitness. You know, brain fitness, not just mental health, and really view the brain as a tractable organ that can be exercised, can be tuned, can be trained in a way that you know we may only think about the body in that context—the sort of fitness model for exercise. Um, so, I've been really trying to extend that up to the brain space, if you will. And also to sort of destigmatize. It doesn't really matter if you're an alcoholic or you're ADHD or you're a high-powered executive who's stressed out. You know, we all have brains, uh, hopefully. And brain's whole job, the the, the, a big feature, what the brain does automatically to some extent, is uh, pattern matching. It extracts information from the environment to help you avoid pain and maximize your gains. Things like you know, sex and food. So with this natural tuning of the brain to pattern itself against the stressors, demands, resources, the environment is demanding, then I think we need to consider the brain in uh, the perspective of uh, an organ that we can change, you know, mental fitness, mental floss, you know, brain hygiene. There's lots of things you can do day in, day out to keep your brain performing and functioning at a much higher level than you might be able to do if you simply let all the stressors and, you know, uh, very random life events, you know, stresses on sleep and time, Really affect how your brain performs. We don't have to necessarily put up with a suboptimal brain. So that's that's really my uh, the axe I'm grinding, so to speak, these days. Or the soapbox I'm you know, <laughs> shouting from. So.
1: All right. Well, we'll let you stay on that soapbox for a little longer. I want to, I want to really dive into how we can optimize. I think that's that's the probably the area mm-hmm. that most people are interested in. Before mm-hmm. we do, I had a question. I on. Back a, a few episodes in the archive, I believe it was episode 51, I talked to an adolescent counselor about executive functioning, mm-hmm. and she introduced me to an idea that I'd never heard before. Rather than saying uh, somebody has ADHD or Asperger's, uh, she talked about people just being on a different spectrum of the neurodiversity scale. Yeah. and. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and if some people, just because of evolutionary reasons are more apt to <laughs> distraction and other people are more apt to focus you know, yeah. just like back in the day we needed some people to go and focus and
0: mm-hmm.
1: hunt down that woolly mammoth and other people needed to like uh, notice when a, a tribe was coming in or, or whatever it happened to be what are your Thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I certainly believe that there's something there. Um, This this idea of the hunter versus gatherer brain where uh, the hunters are the ADHD people that can notice everything in the environment but aren't good at sitting down next to the row of plants and weeding them for hours at a time, right? They're more likely to scan the environment, notice the stimuli, notice the berry hiding hiding under a leaf or the tiger ready to pounce on you around the corner. Um, That's the ADHD brain that, that is interested in novelty and new stimuli. And uh, processes everything in the environment without a lot of filtering of the sensory system. That's evolutionarily valid. You know, pressures in our environment rewarded that and and kept those genes going. We became better and better and better sort of wide-focus hunters as uh, the environment rewarded those kind of genes. But we also rewarded genes where you sit and work at, you know, farming or crafts or other kind of uh, long, you know, slow reward kind of tasks That was also rewarded. That was evolutionarily valid too. And so now as modern humans, we have really a wide range of resources. And I don't necessarily believe that things like ADHD are always pathological. I think that there's often a mismatch between the kind of brain you have, the things you're strongest and best at, and the kind of demands you end up being faced with. You know, if you're a, a hunter brain, you're somebody who's got amazing reaction time and wide focus and creativity and you notice everything in the environment, and you get a job where you sit in a quiet, boring gray cubicle for you know nine hours a day, you might not have the degree of environmental stimulation to engage the kind of brain uh you have optimally. And so um this gets into the idea of destigmatizing or depathologizing brains you know a huge amount of uh unusual is normal you know weird is not the exception weird is the rule when it comes to brains um everyone is dramatically different from the next person over same age same gender same you know functional complaints different brains most of the time so you have to really consider the brain as this you know furiously complex organ the most complex piece of uh, machinery so to speak that we know about it is uh uh, as complex as a galaxy is in its construction, in terms of the number of different little nodes and and uh, intercommunicated uh, you know, sort of pressures, um, in this case, of course, cell firing, but um, massively complex. This three pound ball of you know jelly above our above our shoulders is far and away a the most complicated computer we could even conceive of, let alone you know reproduce. So. Um, I, I think we need to really view the brain as less mysterious and as something we are actually responsible for taking care of. You know, and I don't mean just don't drink too much alcohol, don't you know, sit around and watch TV all day. I mean, do stuff to assess its function and change it. You know, if you are ADHD, um, you can get rid of those impulsivity sort of patterns. And there's lots of different ways to brain hack or you know neuro neuro hack. Uh, you mentioned a few of them, including things like uh, mindfulness and meditation, uh, neurofeedback, nootropics, um, exercise, low fat—sorry, sorry—low carb, high fat diets are also pretty good for brain health. These things all really do affect the brain, and they affect it in a very, very quick time frame. So, I think it's important to realize we have the tools, and we can uh, we can do a lot more than we might realize.
1: All right. So, I'm I'm trying to decide if you said in that if we should. Try to play to our strengths uh, if if we mm-hmm. are more of the the hunter versus the gatherer type of information, if we are focused a little bit more we should we should find a place where we could we could go and, and focus our attention versus maybe get a little bit more stimulus so that's the kind of the difference between a programmer and yeah. a salesperson or do you think that everybody could be? the programmer, and everybody could be the salesperson. just depends on the way that they train
0: their mind. I think both are true. I think we should play to our strengths. We should do what, what drives us, what lights our fire, what makes us passionate. It's so much easier to spend huge amounts of effort on things that engage us. And so you do spend the effort. I mean, if I give you an onerous task and say, you must become an expert at, I don't know, stacking dominoes or something, um, and it's going to take you, you know, the next six months of, of, of working hard many hours a day at this, you might balk, right? Why would I want to do this boring thing and become an expert at it? But if, if you really have the resources and the need to do that task, I think that most people's brains can learn to become performant under most kinds of demands. Unless you know, you're severe, unless you're really profoundly inattentive or hyperactive impulsive, and then you might need some you know, support around that, some actual interventions around that. But for the vast majority of people that have some challenges in stress response or tension management, um, I think that you um, can can change how your brain works. And I think that the choice of do you put yourself in an environment where you're playing to your strengths and avoiding your weaknesses isn't always wonderful because you know then you don't challenge yourself and you you don't necessarily develop the same sense of efficacy or agency for things you aren't as comfortable with. So it is important not to just do things that are easy and, and interesting and fun, but we also need to recognize that we don't have to tolerate a brain that is not fit and is not a, a good match for the work environment, let's say, or the academic demands or the, you know, the kinds of challenges we have set, set, set ourselves up with. I mean, if you're working in a job, you're in school, you're you know, deep into the, the trenches, so to speak, of your life, at that point, if you discover you have a stress problem or a sleep problem or an attention problem or an alcohol problem, you know it's it's a little easy to say, okay, well, change your life, give yourself a job where you don't have to do the things that are stressful or overwhelming. It's not practical for everyone. I mean, people find themselves in effortful performance environments where they have to perform whether or not they enjoy what they're doing, uh, every moment of the you know of the task. And so, I think giving yourself more resources in general, building up the sustained attention, the deep sleep, the lack of stress response, that's something you should do anyways, even if the environment and the work uh, and productivity you're trying to engage with is very central to your interests, you still could benefit from building brain resources. And if what you're doing is not central to your interest, you'd like to be out you know, painting mountains and instead you're sitting in a cubicle, um, it's even more important to tune your brain to bring the resources up to meet the demands you're actually faced with. So the answer is both, I would say both fit your brain to the environment you want to be in and fit the environment to the kind of brain uh, behavior or performance you like to use long-term.
1: Let's dive in. What, How do we optimize this performance? What are some of the lowest-hanging fruit out there mm-hmm. for increasing your ability to either handle stress or control attention or... Focus for long periods of time. And if those sure. are different ones, uh, feel free to share that.
0: Yeah, there's, there's some overlap. Um, I would say the lowest hanging fruit are things that are free and we don't need equipment for. And those include things like sleep hacking and mindfulness as two big uh, low-hanging fruits. So uh, mindfulness, you know, we always carry around our brain, hopefully. And mindfulness is basically, or meditation is basically attention training, uh, the act of meditation, the act of, of, of being mindful is, broadly speaking, a type of uh, anchor. You, you choose a specific way to pay attention and you practice paying attention in that manner uh, for several minutes. And Since you have a brain, it gets distracted and, and uh, the act, the, the repetition, the, the workout of meditation is simply noticing when, you, when you've gotten distracted, you're thinking, planning, wishing, feeling, dreaming, fantasizing, whatever – and bring your mind back to the uh, mindful anchor, the attention you decided to have for that you know, few minutes. That's it. Simply, oh, I'm thinking, back to the anchor. Oh, I'm distracted, back to the anchor. Oh, my knee hurts, back to the anchor. That's all meditation is. So it's very easy to do. It's a little bit boring. It's a little hard to keep with it. But we all have a brain. We all have the equipment with us. And we all have a few minutes here and there. So there's no reason not to do it. And if you meditate for, you don't have to do a lot of it. You know, It's not like... Um, uh, you must sit and meditate for a whole weekend at once. Uh, the research suggests that a very small amount of time has massive impact on your brain if done with regularity, meaning it's not so much about the amount of time you sit down and meditate. It's about how often you do it. So daily seems to be the best way to do it. And 15 or 20 minutes uh, appears to be sufficient to make the kind of changes the literature shows happen when you meditate.
1: And what are those changes?
0: Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of things that happen. Um, you become less reactive emotionally. You can develop a little better executive function. Um, there's some evidence that working memory may actually go up, which is the holy grail of human performance because everything is bottlenecked through uh, working memory. Um, also, there's some really compelling research that suggests that long-term meditators uh, are spared the brain uh, aging, the, the sort of normal brain aging, not, not pathological, but you know, all of us as we get older, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, Um, The processing speed slows down. There's a few other brain changes that happen. And a lot of this is due to literally losing tissue, losing cortex in the frontal lobe and the sort of uh, insula, the sides, if you will, of the frontal lobe, um, where the the soft part of the temple is. Um, Those those parts of the brain, that sort of front area that wraps around both sides, uh, if you are a long-term meditator and we image your brain and you're 70 or 80 years old, you don't show any of the cortical thinning from aging versus a non-meditator. It's pretty profound. And the degree to which you are spared that cortical thinning is positively correlated with the number of hours of meditation you have done in your life. So if you start meditating as a middle-aged person, you will actually not develop the same kind of slowed reaction time, word-finding issues, maybe sleep issues that other elders in your family may have had when they just naturally aged into a slightly less performant brain. So there's no reason not to do mindfulness. It does look like in about a week of doing it, you will experience subjective change, maybe faster. And uh, in a couple of weeks of doing it, your brain will have so many changes that you can see it on things like uh, neuroimaging, EEG, uh, fMRI, etc. cetera. So um, broadly, executive function, resiliency, and self-control are what you get from mindfulness uh, meditation. and Again, you don't need to do very much, but you have to do it with regularity to build up the, the sort of resources you're working with.
1: All right. So it's basically to say something you said earlier. It's a preservative for your jar of jelly upstairs. This is yeah, my, my sure, sure. Thing.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, it's, men, it's mental floss, you know. Okay.
1: I Now, I'm curious at what the... Um, what some of the research that you've been doing on brain waves mm-hmm. and what that tells us about the the mind? Because you just mentioned uh, EEGs, which is a way to measure mm-hmm. the electricity that's coming off our brain from the neurons firing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and the different waves—the theta, the gamma, the alpha? Yeah.
0: So um, unfortunately, the EEG waves are named using Greek letters: alpha, beta, gamma, delta, um, and and that's actually the the order of the Greek alphabet. Alpha's first. Uh, Alpha, beta, gamma, delta in order ABCD, um, but they were named based on when they were discovered, and we didn't necessarily discover them in order. So let me tell you in order, going from slowest brain wave to fast brain waves, very slow brain waves. The slowest ones are called delta. Delta is below about uh, three and a half or four cycles per second, which is called a hertz. So four oscillations per second. Um, or low, uh, or, or below that is delta, and delta is a frequency in the brain that is used for lots of things. Um, it's used for deep restorative sleep, so the memory consolidation that happens when you're deeply, deeply sleeping and not dreaming. The sort of slow wave sleep. That's mostly a delta state. Although of course you make all brain waves all the time. So when you're wide awake, you're still making a tiny bit of delta, but not as much as you're making when you're deeply asleep. Uh, hopefully. And uh, then going up in frequency, up in speed, the next frequency up is theta. Theta is about four to seven cycles per second. um, And theta is a sort of broad access frequency. It's memory access, creativity, broad focus, if you will, drinking in the environment, being a little reactive. It's not necessarily a good or a bad thing when it's excessive. Uh, Excess theta is typically lack of inhibition, lack of breaks on the brain. So, cognitively or performance wise, if you see somebody has excess theta, they typically have impulsivity or hyperactivity. You know, they're not quite as able to control themselves. Things happen a bit more automatically, if you will. Um, I, I should mention delta. If we see excesses in delta, it usually means you've developed some concussions because uh, the 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 brainstem, the sort of most primitive part of the brain, um, runs in delta. And it does so because it uses that frequency to synchronize all of the sort of non voluntary stuff in the body, like the heartbeat and the lungs. Um, They're being driven, if you will, by the brainstem delta frequencies. And the cortex, the much sort of the the the, the top part of the brain that we think with, um, doesn't usually produce delta unless you develop significant concussions, you squish the tissue, and develop some scar tissue. And what happens then is the connections going into that part of the brain can't make the brain tissue change its behavior because it's damaged, and that part of the brain drops back into delta, just the default lowest frequency in the brain. And so if you see a hot spot, if you will, excess delta, that does not go away when you open your eyes, it usually means that, or at least it's a hint for us, that you have some scar tissue, some brain damage, some some concussions. So that's excess delta, excess theta, of course, is impulsivity. Alpha is an idling frequency. Alpha is the sort of uh, resting frequency in the brain. If you close your eyes, the visual cortex goes into alpha ideally because it shuts down without vision coming in the eyes. When you open your eyes, alpha gets suppressed as your brain starts processing information and kicks up into beta, the next fast frequency. So alpha is about 8 to 10, 8 to 12 cycles per second and beta is 12 and up, about 12 to 40 hertz or cycles per second. And so alpha, again, is idling. If you open your eyes and alpha does not go away, we call that inattention or spaciness. Essentially, you're stuck in neutral. If you close your eyes and alpha does not come up in the back of the head, if it stays in beta, it stays in processing mode, we would consider that hypervigilance. You know, you aren't ever checking out. You're, you're staying processing. Even with no stimulus coming in your eyes, your visual cortex is cranking through you know, metabolic activity just in case. So uh, we expect to see the brain doing different things in different modes, and when these things are off, it tells us about how your brain is performing. So um, the last frequency that that you mentioned, actually, Zach, was uh, gamma, and gamma is usually about thirty-eight or forty and up. Human brain waves do seem to start out well below zero, well well below one hertz. You know, point zero 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 one. There's some waves down that low, and there's also apparently there there are apparently waves uh, up in the you know two to three hundred hertz range as well. But EEG is a bit confusing and complicated in that the slowest frequencies have large amplitude and the highest frequencies have small amplitude. What that means is uh, a big slow delta wave for the same amount of electricity, you might have a whole bunch of little tiny beta or gamma waves for the same amount of you know, tissue uh, met metabolism. Because the waves get smaller as you go up in frequency, they become harder and harder to measure from outside the head. When these waves pass through the skull, the scalp, the meninges, the bones, etc., they attenuate. They they are decreased in size. And so the, the fastest waves are the smallest and then you can't measure them from outside the head. So gamma up around 40 hertz is actually not measurable from outside the head unless you use very specialized equipment. So the vast majority of people, like if you buy a consumer headset for 150 bucks that tells you you're doing gamma, you're not. It's complete and utter bull. Um, there's there's no way to measure gamma without really expensive equipment or cutting open your skull. And so I don't I don't encourage you guys to do that unless you have really good reasons. You can you can measure the other frequencies delta, theta, alpha and beta and this tells you a huge amount about how you're functioning, you know. If I see you close your eyes and beta doesn't go down, I might say, "Oh, look, hypervigilance." I might see other beta patterns that have to do with markers for PTSD or OCD or major depression. Or we might see um you know, focal areas for anxiety markers or, you know, maybe the whole speed of your brain. Alpha in, is the, as the middle frequency. Alpha is a, uh, an idling rhythm, as I mentioned. At uh, The average frequency of alpha is 10, 10 hertz, 10 seconds per second. But if you get older, you know, quite old, your alpha starts to slow down. And as you're becoming uh, going from a child to an adult, your alpha speeds up. So it speeds up until by age 15 or so. And then it slows down sort of north of 60. It slows down again. So if a kid comes in and their alpha is very, very slow at age 10, then their brain actually looks younger than they are chronologically. Uh, In in contrast, if a 60-year-old CEO comes in and his alpha or her alpha is actually slower than it should be, then I will say things like, oh, it looks like your processing speed is actually dropping off because of age. And so you can see these markers, these discriminant functions, if you will, these these, uh, biomarkers in the EEG, and they have some agreement with function. I mean, you can't diagnose someone's ADHD or anxiety or PTSD or OCD or sleep issues from the, from the EEG by itself. But you can often say, okay, this pattern often is related to X, Y, or Z. Is that true for you? Oh, it is true for you? Oh, okay, let's believe this pattern then. And with a brain map, a QEEG, it's called quantitative EEG. We end up sort of assessing all the frequencies, patterns, connectivity, and distribution of uh, energy, of electricity, across your scalp compared to a database of several thousand people. So if I did a QEEG on USAC, it would would sort of uh, gather baseline, eyes closed, and eyes open data. And then I would take your baseline data and compare them to a database and out of that get uh, statistical maps that tell me how unusual you are compared to a whole bunch of people. And then we figure out if the ways in which you're really unusual are things you care about, things that are getting in the way, um, and things you want to work on. And with that as a target, we can then, of course, uh, uh, start moving the brain and actually changing the frequencies, changing the amplitude and the speed of the brain waves to affect your function. If you come in with excess uh, theta and you're impulsive or excess alpha and you're spacey, you're not making sort of a fixed amount of these frequencies. They're always fluctuating. They're always changing based on what your brain is doing. And in the, um, the EEG training uh, process, we simply measure your brain doing what it's doing. And when things happen to trend in the right direction, let's say you become more focused or so your theta drops, we make something positive happen in the outside environment like uh, you know, a spaceship flies faster or you hear some audio track or something. And then when your brain drifts out of the direction we want it to move in, let's say theta goes back up then we would make the feedback stop. The music pauses, the spaceship stalls, the Pac-Man stops eating dots, whatever it is. And so um, it's not necessarily a low-hanging fruit, you know, neurofeedback, which is what we're talking about, not the way that uh, mindfulness is or sleep hacking because you certainly always have your brain with you. Neurofeedback requires specialized equipment, technology, computers, databases, and a little bit of skill to do uh, properly. And so it's a little bit more of a big gun, a heavy lifter, if you will, in the brain hacking space. But it can make change the brain faster than anything else. So.
1: Interesting. Yeah, and, and I was hearing you talk about that, and I had not heard as much on the topic before. I'm doing a little bit of research. It does seem like, you could, <laughs> the, as a community, the neurofeedback needs to have a little bit more research behind it. There's some positive, there's some negative. But what I, I seem to be seeing, mm-hmm. and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's just like we need to study this more. Um, because I, it, I it,
0: disagree, actually, I, okay. I think that five or ten years ago, that was the, that was true. But this stuff's been around since the late '60s. Hundreds of thousands of people have been trained with neurofeedback successfully, and the efficacy is about ninety percent. About nine out of ten people have their needs met, regardless of what they're coming in for. Now, to put that in context, psychotherapy is effective forty fifty percent of the time. Psychiatric drugs are effective thirty to fifty percent of the time. The the idea that you can affect the brain with efficacy that's 80 or 90%, there's nothing else out there in the world like this. So do we understand how it works at a deep level? No. But uh, have we proven that it does work? Absolutely at this point. There are very many good studies out there now, including double-blind, placebo-controlled studies that show that neurofeedback changes the brain. And for some things, for some complaints, it's incredibly well-validated. And those complaints would be um, well, seizure. And ADHD. Hey, would you mind
1: sending me a, a couple of those? Sure. there are
0: hundreds of papers at this point. So, and the the right. best the best validation is seizure and ADHD. It's very well validated for getting rid of ADHD at this point. Uh, and for most people, I mean, everyone I've seen, uh, it's largely a permanent effect when you train the brain uh, for things like ADHD or anxiety or sleep issues. So, you know, there's lots of poo-pooing out there. And if you find complaints about neurofeedback, you know, know, there's one good Google result that is very negative, but it's complete and utter bull um, in terms of what it says about the the state of the art, the state of the science. Things are much more advanced than the average casual commenter will uh, understand. But it really depends on what you're talking about. Is it well-validated for everything? No. But it's very well-validated for a few things, including sleep, seizure, migraine, ADHD, Creativity and alcohol recovery all have vast amounts of literature supporting uh, the ability of neurofeedback to take you from point A to point B.
1: Now, if, if somebody wasn't able to make the monetary or the, the time investment, which mm-hmm. I understand it's, was it 12, 15 sessions that you've you said? More than that.
0: Yeah, more than that. Oh, 30. It's at, least, it that? it's at least 30. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you're working okay. on, but and who you are, what your brain is like, but you probably want to assume that you're going to need to do a minimum of 20 sessions. And some people never stop training, uh, Depends on what their goals are. But for the average mm-hmm. ADHD person, 20 to 40 sessions will get rid of the ADHD And it's enough training to keep it gone, typically without refreshers, without, you know, uh, seeing them again. For other things like traumatic brain injuries, autism, schizophrenia, um, you might need more training because the brain is more profoundly dysregulated and has more structural damage. And then for some things that are active disease processes, it might not be permanent. Like schizophrenia, for instance, you stop training, hallucinations come back. Or there's some good research out there showing that um, alpha training, relaxation training Brings up T cell counts in people who are HIV positive. Um, that is not going to be a permanent effect. It's not going to cure the HIV, but it provokes this profound relaxation response, which causes a surge in your immune function. So you know you can manipulate the physiology and get some nice effects. Some of those effects, when you know when you consider it a tuning issue, and I do consider a lot of things that you know psychologists might consider mental illness. I don't consider mental illness. I consider them tuning issues. ADHD, anxiety, <clears throat> sleep issues, even migraines. I consider these things sort of regulatory tuning issues. and You can very easily tune the brain into a different mode and that's it. The brain then practices this new mode and sticks in that, in that way for a long time, if not for, you know, for good. Other things, it's much more of a you know, catch as catch can. You're trying to do hunting and pecking and iterative sort of trying to find out what's working for the individual and you eventually close in on what works and then you have to do a bunch of it to make it stick. So, I have clients that stop at 20 sessions. I have clients that have done you know, a couple hundred sessions with me. And a lot of my clients now actually, or at least the ones that aren't in Los Angeles, train themselves under my supervision. They, they come here for a few days and leave with equipment. And then I um, you know, check in with them and they train themselves at home. You could, you know, the, the technology, the application of the tech is not actually you know, rocket surgery, so to speak. Knowing what to do is difficult and, and takes some skill and some, some experience. But actually sticking wires to your head and running a game is not all that complicated. Um, And so I teach people to do that in a few days and then, um, you know, deploy, if you will, deploy training equipment uh, with them at their home. Uh, And then they train themselves and get almost the same kind of results that we get when they come into the office a few times a week. But you're right. It's a process. It doesn't just happen overnight. It's not as easy as swallowing a pill. I think this is one of the reasons why adoption is still low because we have this, you know, Instant gratification society. I think if everyone did neurofeedback, they would have wonderful brains. But you know, why doesn't everyone go to the gym three times a week and have wonderful you know abs uh, and and you know better cardiovascular tone? We can know about interventions without wanting to engage in them. You know, and the the, the time and money commitment. You know, yes, it's expensive and yes, it takes some time, but how expensive is it to not have your ADHD gotten rid of or not have your seizures under control, your anxiety, your OCD? How expensive is that on an ongoing basis? I would argue that vastly more expensive than a few thousand dollars to get rid of your ADHD or your, you know, suppress your seizures uh, with neurofeedback.
1: Well, what are your thoughts on, actually, when you send patients home, do they have those expensive, high-quality machines that can do, uh, reach yeah. the gamma, or do they have a little no, bit no. less
0: time? No, no. Even in the clinic, we don't use gamma training. Uh, it's just not possible. Don't believe anyone that tells you they're doing anything with gamma. It's a, it's a big, giant mistake, if you will, in the popular literature, with a popular EEG world. There is no ability to measure gamma without cutting into the brain or using $100,000 sets of gear. So we don't deploy hundred thousand dollar sets of gear in people's homes, but I do use the same training equipment. I mean, I, I train you know delta, beta, alpha, uh, other frequencies, and you can make all of the changes you need to with relatively low cost equipment. But I don't mean you know two hundred dollar uh, consumer headsets. the The system we put together for home trainers is around uh, I think thirty five hundred dollars these days. And that includes you know, a really high-end computer, an EEG amplifier, signal processing software, game software, and a few other things. And so it's not necessarily like a you know, $50,000 piece of uh, hardware that we deploy. But the good thing is my, my uh, clients actually own the gear. And so the first few months, they're training, making really big changes. And usually about three or four months in, they're, they're done with the first thing they care about. And what I've discovered is most of my clients don't want to give the gear back they they want to keep it they want to keep you know chipping away at things or trying new things long term which is wonderful and so i used to lease gear and then you know have them send it back after a few months and we just stopped doing that because people would be saying well i don't really want to give it back can i can i keep it and so now we just sell people the equipment instead of uh, instead of lease it and again not not hugely expensive as these things go as brain technology goes a few thousand dollars for hardware is uh, um, a low enough barrier for people if they're struggling with, you know, significant stuff like ADHD or anxiety or sleep issues or uh, other problems. Um, it's worth the investment for them long term. So, uh, and and again, you don't have to be working on a deficit. You can be doing performance work, creativity work, but just general focus and stamina work for your attention. So, there's a lot of people end up using it. Um, the home trainers end up sort of using it initially for themselves or the person they wanted to train first and then uh, invariably i get the sibling the parent the nephew the neighbor finds out that you know little impulsive jimmy is now a grade a student or you know uh, jane the ceo is suddenly relaxed and calm and twice as productive and people just people notice that kind of stuff and then they they want some hey what are you doing are you taking stimulants are you in new therapy what you know things are really different what's going on Oh, I'm doing this brain training thing. You're doing what? And it gets a lot of attention, and people often call me and want you know me to set up training for other folks in the family. Uh, and because of that, I have these random pockets of people around the world where I've got you know five or six families training in this city and in this city. Because it just grows organically when people discover how powerful the process is. So,
1: all right, got any families in Austin? I want to check this out. Uh, I
0: do. Yes. <laughs> yep. Uh, I have, cool. I have Maybe one.
1: after the show we can we sure. can exchange. Information if they're open to it. Uh, I, but I do, I do want to quickly ask you if you do have any, feel like there's in, any validity to the two $300 bands that are, are going out there zero. to train, zero, train your brain. Zero
0: validity. Absolutely. And not only zero validity, but potentially harmful, like because you're not, you're not doing what it says it's doing. No, there's, there, there, you're wasting your money and you're actually sort of uh, wasting your effort and your time. Instead of spending $300 on a, on a cheap headband, Spend 600 bucks or 1000 bucks on an actual EEG amplifier and learn to use it. There's, there's several problems with the headbands. One is that the quality of the signals are really rather abysmal. Um, I've, I've taken raw data off some of the headbands and pulled it into different software and looked at the raw quality, and it's just really, really bad. Um, even, even modern stuff that's just come out is really bad for these low-cost devices. The other really big problem is you don't want to train the brain across the forehead. The place where most neurofeedback happens is on the central motor strip that runs from ear to ear across the top of the head. And so you need to train the top of the head. You need to train the back of the head, the front of the head. You need to be able to move electrodes around. So just picking two random spots or one random spot from a headband is not going to work for 95% of people's goals in terms of the kind of brain changes you want to provoke. Also, frontal training, forehead training, is the least reliable way to train the brain. It tends to produce um, – with biofeedback, it tends to produce very delayed effects, uh, sort of unpredictable effects sometimes. And so you just don't generally want to train the frontal lobe even if the signals were were, were sufficient to do so and they're not. The software and the hardware coming out of these consumer companies is um, – it's worse than vaporware because it says it's doing something and it's just not. It's, it's, it's really quite poor. So you're, it's not a substitute for um, – you know, going to a professional or buying, you know, a relatively good set of quality gear, which is only, you know, instead of instead of a few hundred bucks, you maybe add a thousand dollars to your to your cost for buying actual real equipment. So it's not, you know, like twenty, thirty times as much. It's just a few hundred dollars more to buy something that actually works. But you gotta then learn to where to put, you know, wires on your head and how to run software. And this is why the cheap consumer devices actually have a market because they seem like they're simple and they're sexy because they have the word brain on them. But you're not actually doing any uh, real neurofeedback with them. You can't. And you could potentially harm people by training frontal uh, sites on the forehead, on the, on the scalp or the forehead, because that's just not the right way to train for most people. So I, I'm really, really not uh, uh, terribly impressed or pleased with the development of the field in this direction. I think it's going to cause more problems than it, than it solves.
1: Wow. Okay. Um, even the ones that uh, are, are geared towards meditation. Especially the
0: ones, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, and, and why, why especially those, those types of bands?
0: Because meditation is something you should be doing without any assistance. You're not training the brain to meditate with biofeedback. Meditation is a resource you have to build. So you know, you're, you're not going to do biofeedback to put somebody in a meditative state. Biofeedback does not produce – I mean it's very subtle state changes – it can produce state changes, but the goal, the overall efficacy of neurofeedback is about affecting traits, shifting the long-term traits of the brain. So the idea that you need a, an audio mirror, if you will, to tell you when you're meditating, that's only useful for people that have absolutely no experience doing anything with their mind. You know? But once you've gotten over the hump of meditating once or twice or read a, you know a paragraph about how to meditate, you realize that it's not about the flashy toys – it's about sitting your butt on the cushion for a few minutes every day and doing it. And just like I think guided meditation is not very useful long-term for most people, I think it's a, it's a crutch. I think it gets in the way of developing real skills and real concentration, real resiliency, real frontal function. I think these, these uh, bogus devices out there have the same issue, but it's even worse because they tell you that your brain waves are doing X, Y, and Z, and therefore you're meditating, but they're not because they can't measure your brain waves. Because 90% of the signal is noise. Because they use really aggressive filters to get rid of the noise. These dry electrodes and that uh, distorts the signal in time across many many seconds. So the software's audio, uh, you know, indication that you're in meditation, for instance, is not actually yoked to your brain in real time. So I think there's, you know, I, I could go on for an hour about the about the other kinds of problems in these devices. They're they're a miss. They're a near miss in terms of what they're trying to do. And um, the CEOs of these companies know that. I've talked to the, to the CEOs of several headband companies as they were developing their products, including ones that are oriented towards mindfulness, including ones that are oriented towards neurofeedback, and said, hey, guys, as you develop your product, you have to think about this, this, and this. And they all basically said to me, ah, that's, that's a great idea. We should think about that. And it's too hard. And so we're just going to produce a headband instead. And they just defaulted back to what they think they could sell. But it's not doing anyone any benefit, you know? Um, the only possible benefit is oh you spent 200 bucks on a headband and it makes you put your butt on the cushion okay that's the benefit is putting your butt on the cushion not the actual you know signals coming off your head the audio coming off the headband so don't spend the 200 bucks if you're going to meditate spend the 100 bucks on a meditation cushion you know buy yourself a nice cushion buy yourself some heavy you know shades for your for your window that's a much better use of your money than a vaporware a piece of hardware and software that tells you it's measuring brainwaves when it's not. When Most of what it's getting is muscle tension off your forehead. And a drop in muscle tension means your forehead's more relaxed. That's wonderful. But you don't need a, you don't need a, a device that claims to be measuring brainwaves to relax your forehead. You just need to actually practice it. And so, you know, I mean, people buy uh, really expensive workout equipment and then never use it. You know that's sort of in this category. Uh, except I would say that we're now we're now in the category of buying, you know, three AM infomercial workout gear that doesn't actually do anything. You know, bizarre little you know, resistance bands and some celebrity selling it. That's really the level of technology we have out there now in the consumer products, these headband products. They're just not. Uh, they they bear no resemblance, oddly enough, to what's real in in terms of EEG technology. Even though they 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 look like EEG tech, they, they really aren't. Um, they're they're vapor, okay. but mostly vaporware. I have a I have a pretty strong feeling here. So yeah,
1: um, I hit on a hit on a hot topic yeah, there yeah. because it seems like we've 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 talked on both ends of the spectrum. And this is longer than our typical episode. But I was I was just fascinated when you were getting into the science of this, and I'm going to definitely re-listen to this and and try to learn what I can. Uh, from from what you've said, but we've gone on both ends of the spectrum. We've we've kind of gone the simple, mm-hmm. um, you know, improve your sleeping habits, um, uh, exercise more regularly, uh, try to do some sort of very simple meditation mm-hmm. to like complete EEG. You know, go in, have get a get a brain scan, get um, get some high powered equipment to actually train the brain using this this uh, this powerful software with a with a trained clinician um, who's able to do this. Um, let's go right before we we kind of wrap things up and, and I'll ask you the last three questions uh, your, uh, your, your book, your tool or resource and your ritual that you would do every day to take more action on your goals sort of the middle ground mm-hmm. uh, which is which is what you put into your body. Mm. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that and how that affects cognition because I know, you know, everyone's experienced eating a cheeseburger in the middle of the day, and then you're just done for. Sure, for or, sure. um, or, or even just in general, like, hey, you try to clean up your diet, and you notice that uh, you're able to think a little bit more clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about that before we sure. start to wrap things up?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm a big proponent of in terms of diet of things that might be considered uh, low carb. So you know, paleo, primal, etc. Um, things in that realm. I think that the literature is fairly compelling that low sugar, low starch, and high fat diets are really brain healthy and really body healthy too. In the absence of dietary sugars, it looks like fat, even saturated fat, doesn't raise cholesterols in the blood um, in in a negative way. So um, I would say that the first thing to think about in terms of what you put in your mouth is upping the fats and dropping the, the starches and dropping the starches and sugars fairly low. You know, I, I think most humans, most Westerners, uh, have several times the carbohydrate load a day their body can really handle, and that's why we have metabolic syndrome and you know, diabetes and things to the degree that we do, uh, and, and even Alzheimer's as a as a sort of type three diabetes. But uh, I I tell my students when I'm teaching at UCLA, I tell my students that about 100 grams of carbs per day is kind of the maximum for a healthy person. Unless you're a hardcore athlete, and then you can probably go up a little bit. Um, and if you're sedentary, that's way too much, and you're basically developing massive health risks by being sedentary and eating too many carbohydrates. So I think that diet's easy to fix if you, you know, get good at cooking and good at not grabbing the most convenient thing that's, you know, high sort of reward value, and you eat, you know, really good fats, proteins, vegetables, fruits, and then minimize, profoundly minimize grains. Free starches and sugars, uh, and then the other piece about consumption, or you know, things you put in your mouth, would be the category of nootropics. You know, compounds that support brain health and function are neuroprotective. And um, the other component of the, the definition of nootropics that I think is worth uh, uh, emphasizing is nootropics should cause no um, side effects. And if if it causes a side effect, you should not call it a nootropic. Like caffeine wouldn't be considered a nootropic, strictly speaking. Because it has tolerance and, you know, and, and bladder effects, and suppresses appetite, it might be a cognitive enhancer, and don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of caffeine. I think a couple cups of coffee a day are really brain healthy in terms of you know, dietary interventions. It looks like two cups of coffee a day decrease risks for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's and other age-related diseases long term, uh, decreases risk of cancers and uh, some types of cancers as well. So coffee's really, really healthy. But um, beyond that modifier, there's a whole class of things which are subtle but work long-term to either support brain health or work against aging or work against brain damage. And I think those things can really be potentially profound long-term for people. And, and the, the, the the class of nootropics covers a broad range of compounds, amino acids, supplements, herbs, synthetic chemicals, and You really can sort of go down a rabbit hole pretty quickly looking into nootropics. Um, I would just like to give people one nootropic to think about starting with. Uh, There's one called L-theanine, which is found – it's naturally found in tea leaves. And it's why tea gives you a smooth push instead of a jittery push the way coffee can if you overdo it. Um, And so we encourage people – I I work for a company called True Brain as well as uh, my my brain training center – and TrueBrain encourages folks to add L-theanine to their coffee and to sort of modify the stimulant effects of coffee and get more of a smooth, calm focus. Uh, just one example of how you could use a nootropic to sort of slightly tune.
1: Interesting. You could just add that in Totally. It, you can get L-theanine in a liquid form? That... You can. Actually, cool.
0: TrueBrain is about to release, if they haven't yet, they'll have it soon, these little, um, uh, they're calling them focus sticks, Little, they're kind of like sugar sticks or honey sticks for, for tea. But there's no honey in them. It's actually full of L-theanine and a choline source to sort of doctor your cup of coffee with some nootropics. Um, very low you know, barrier to entry. These things aren't crazy chemicals. They're very safe. I think that's a good way to start with nootropics as opposed to buying random research chemicals from China or some off-label pharmaceutical from India. I think you can get into real trouble there because the side effects are risky because the manufacturing routes aren't well understood for you know some of these black market or gray market chemicals. But there's lots of things that are are accessible, including L-theanine, which you can buy over the counter really cheaply, you know, Amazon or wherever. Um, and then there's other you know amino acids and compounds, things like tyrosine as an amino acid. Tyrosine is the precursor to dopamine, so it helps you feel more interested, more focused. There's uh, you know magnesium, the mineral magnesium is actually nootropic; it helps both calm you down and focus you for many people. There's other herbs, other synthetic compounds. Uh, a few years ago, I helped um, TrueBrain, the company TrueBrain, develop uh, a blend, uh, a stack of different compounds that we think is a pretty good sort of 1.0 uh, entree into the nootropic space for for people. It's uh, you know We, we, we curated a, a nootropic product for folks. Um, but in general, the concept of nootropics I think is worth thinking about. Things you put in your mouth affect your brain and if you minimize sugars and maximize good amino acids and then maybe fine-tune with a few of these chemicals, you can – Dial in the experience of your mind day-to-day uh, with some, with some uh, you know, reliability, which is a wonderful resource to have I me mean, today. I knew I had to do the productivity podcast and so I, I uh, you know, woke up raring to go, but I didn't get enough sleep. Last night I went to bed quite late and got about four hours sleep. And so you know, I was a little bit off my game at, at 8 a.m. this morning. And um, you know sometimes – some days I, I'm feeling uh, totally well-rested. And I take nootropics and I'm, you know, on fire and a superman all day long getting all my work done. Other days I'm underrested because I was up too late last night and nootropics kind of bring me back to my baseline. So they can be used both ways to sort of shore up, you know, uh, high stress, low resource living or to um, work long term to support a little bit of increased output, focus, calmness and other sort of resources. So um, not exactly dietary but I think it falls into the same, you know, rough category.
1: Yeah, I was, I, when you were talking to macro, I was going to then say, well, let's get into the micro or any other vitamins. Mm-hmm. Uh, besides L-theanine and magnesium, uh, are there any other easy over-the-counter ones that you would say are cognitive enhancers? I know I've, I've heard B12 before. Sure. There's um, uh, omega-3, yeah, um, B12 the definitely, vitamin D3. Yeah,
0: B- B12, D3, I think everyone should be taking 5,000 IUs of D3 first thing in the morning. Vitamin D is not really a vitamin. It's more of a pro-hormone. Every tissue in the body has a vitamin D receptor. And vitamin D is used to make hormones as well as other things. So I think everybody should be taking vitamin D3. I think most people should be taking omega-3 fatty acids or at least you know, trying to get a lot in your diet. And I think, the, I think omega-3s are a kind of a, a tricky thing to supplement because most of the supplements out there on the shelves are, are bad. They're, they're, they're rancid. Fish oil tends to oxidize very quickly. And so if you're taking an omega-3 product and you're burping fish later on, it's a rancid product and you need to get a different product. That being said, I do think that omega-3s are wonderful to supplement.
1: One thing that I've I've heard about the, yeah, you've got to buy a quality of fish oil um, if, if you take that supplement, and that having the ratio be a little higher on the EPA versus the DHA uh, was seemed to be a, better for quality. Um, and I noticed that you guys use DHA Yeah. And, uh, as one of your ingredients. I was wondering why you, you chose My that. My
0: guess is the EPA or DHA for quality, quote-unquote, is not a quality. It's a cost. And, and they're marketing it as if it's quality. Uh, EPA is much, more, much less expensive to produce in a synthetic fashion. And most EPA out there is synthetic. It's you know, reverse osmosis, sort of synthesized, or it's you know, chemically extracted and things. And I don't think it's all that good for you. Um, the body can also cross-convert EPA and DHA to some extent. And so taking one of them will actually help, uh, you know, produce the other a little bit.
1: Isn't the EPA one that comes from more vegetable and the DPA is more No, no. It's actually no?
0: It's, it's other omega-3s that come from vegetables. ALA and other things like that come from, uh, come from vegetables. EPA comes from animals oh, okay. uh, and DHA comes from animals. But here's the thing. You know, we think of, EP, we think of omega-3 fatty acids, e, EPA and DHA, as coming from, you know, deep-sea fish. But you also get high amounts of omega-3 in grass-fed meat. Higher amounts in grass-fed meat than in deep-sea fish. So it does come from animals. Um, but in the fish, you know, the fish are really, really, you know, full of DHA. But the fish don't get it. Uh, they don't manufacture it really. They eat it. So they're they're eating krill. You know, little shrimp that are full of these uh, omega-3 fatty acids, and then the fish store them in their bodies. Uh, the omega-3s. But the krill also aren't manufacturing it. Krill are getting it from algae, so at the lowest level of the food chain, DHA comes from algae in the ocean, and that's where the, the fish are getting it upstream, so to speak. But the fish are higher up in the food chain, so you also get things like mercury in your fish sometimes, mm-hmm. unless you get sort of uh, you know specially prepared omega threes. But I think that the process of of like you know uh, um, distilling fish oil, which is what is often done these days, I think it i think it damages, if you will, the oil or, or strips out some of the components. So I think that if you're trying to supplement, you're probably best off with DHA for brain reasons. EPA tends to be more used in the body and DHA is more used in the brain. So if you have inflammatory stuff and you're in pain and you're trying to work through arthritis, then, eat, then supplementing EPA mostly is a good idea. But if you're trying to affect your growth and development as a child or you're trying to affect brain stuff long-term then supplementing with DHA is much more important. And I really do believe that the touting the quality as having a higher amount of EPA is really cost, because it costs manufacturers more to put a lot of DHA in products than it does to put a lot of EPA in products.
1: Okay, good to know. I I don't know where this resource is right now, but I, I've got a buddy who, who gave me a good... Uh, Peer-reviewed site for different supplements that I've used a couple times. So I'll be sure to put that in the in the show notes. Great, uh, because it's scientists go in and and uh, and and rate them based off uh, different factors. And I noticed that the the big bottle of, of fish oil that I had had like a fraction of the um, of both EPA and DHA uh, omega three as this like little tiny. Bottle that I I bought and and so I'd have to take four or five mm-hmm. fish oils in order to take one supplement uh, from it. So while it costs a little more, I I don't have to take as much. And fish oil and and um, uh, D three are just ones that I I try to take every day. And um and I'll start messing around with some of these other ones. Magnesium I also use this this supplement called Calm. Mm-hmm. You mix sure. it in a drink. Yep. Or uh, for bedtime that works really well. So that, that's
0: so. that's Cal Mag then probably calcium and magnesium probably.
1: Oh yeah, calcium yeah. and magnesium. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. right. You're right. Cool. Well, cool, Dr. Hill. Thank you so much. You've you've really given a lot of, of of food for thought. I'm I'm really interested to learn a little bit more about this uh, this neural feedback and mm-hmm. maybe not do it such the hacker way. And um and, and glad that you've you were able to enlighten us a little bit more about the benefits of of mindfulness and the science behind that. Real quickly, um, I- any book that you've read recently that you'd want to recommend to our listeners.
0: Yeah, there's a book um, by a UCLA professor named Jeff Schwartz called The Mind and the Brain and it's a wonderful perspective on, on neuroplasticity and, and how uh, things like mindfulness and other uh, mental tricks, if you will, mental resources affect the brain's plasticity long term and uh, it's also a wonderful book because Schwartz covers a lot of the, the history of brain research and how we sort of got into this understanding of plasticity, including some of the dark chapters of you know neuroscience research with animals, uh, you know, 50 years ago. Um, so, uh, Jeff Schwartz, "The Mind and the Brain," I think is a wonderful way to get a perspective on um, how changeable the brain is. So, I'd encourage folks to check that book out.
1: Awesome! I look forward to getting into that. It. I was first introduced to the idea of neuroplasticity and Carol Dweck's uh, work on mm-hmm. on learned helplessness versus mm-hmm, mm-hmm. growth mindset. So I, I would love to hear a more scientific backed uh, approach. So that looks like a great read. Um, what about a tool or resource? Is there
0: anything that you use uh, every day yeah. that that helps you get more done? Sure, so um, I would say I use um, a, an app called the Insight timer. It's a meditation uh, timer that I think is lovely, and it's either you know a couple bucks or free. Um, and it's a, a timer where you can set different lengths of segments of time and have different audio bells ringing at different points in time. so you can like set up a I mean what I encourage folks to do for meditation is a 20 minute meditation where you do five minutes of concentration practice and then fifteen minutes of awareness practice or single point awareness, and then present time awareness, or samatha, and then vipassana, um, or concentration and then insight. And it's nice to not have to open your eyes and look at the clock when you're deciding to switch meditation strategies, you know, in your your workout, so to speak. And so I love to set it up where it rings three bells at the beginning, one bell at five minutes, and then three bells at the end. And just the simple ability to sort of configure different bells across segments of time to guide a meditation gives me a lot of power to sort of Customize what kind of you know auditory cues I'm going to use for switching in and out of different stages of meditation. So uh, I'd encourage folks to check out that tool as a you know free or very low cost app. Wonderful.
1: Have you written about how you uh, go from the focus to the the mindfulness meditation anywhere that I can link to?
0: I have. There's a there's a Tumblr um, a TrueBrain Tumblr uh, website where I where I talk about just a little twenty minute uh, tutorial on how to meditate for, for for beginners, so to speak. And that does cover this twenty minute you know five minutes of Concentration, fifteen minutes of awareness uh, practice that I that I think is a great you know first practice for people. So wonderful.
1: I'd l- I'd love to get that and put it in the show notes because yeah, maybe absolutely. I'll take off my Headspace training wheels. I've been using them for a <laughs> couple of years now. We'll debate later, <laughs> but um, I I would be interested. I feel like I'm at a at a place where I don't need uh, somebody coming in necessarily and and guiding me anymore. But there mm-hmm. are some some uh, meditations within that application that are very like. He says like ten words, so, and then what about a ritual
0: or a habit
1: that you do every day? Yeah. meditation could could be yours, or if you, if you have anything else that
0: I do, but um, yeah, what's been more sort of profoundly transformative for me over the past couple of years is I developed an Ashtanga yoga practice, so I show up at you know six thirty in the morning at the Ashtanga yoga studio, and for folks that don't know, Ashtanga is a style of yoga that's often taught. Uh, it's named after the city where it was developed. It's often taught in Mysore style. Uh, and what that means is you're showing up and doing your own practice, you know, your own point in the sequence. And so you're not following people. You aren't listening to other people talk to you. You aren't watching. You aren't looking around. And you're just moving repetitively through these uh, motions, these, these physical postures you've learned and overlearned, so you aren't thinking about them really. And you're synchronizing your breathing and your motion um a whole sequence of movements for you know an hour or so without somebody talking to you, and this allows me at least to drop into both a very workout kind of space where my body's you know sweating and stretching, as well as a meditative space because of the the language component isn't there. Uh, there's no one at the front of the room talking. You know, do this, do this, do this. It's people walking around gently adjusting and you know quietly you know commenting and things. So for me, ashtanga has been has been life uh, changing over the past couple of years. Um, and doing that first thing in the morning means that by eight a m my day is set, and my mind is different than it was you know when I woke up and it's you know more even keeled more resilient, and I have a lot less stress and then I tend to go you know most of my day without uh you know getting stressed out or being reactive because i've had this sort of soft warm glow from you know aggressively working out and meditating uh for about an hour in the morning so. All right.
1: yeah, as long as we don't talk about uh home EEG kits, then, then you're, you're good to go. You're calm all day. <laughs>
0: That's right. That's right. That's all right. Right. Exactly. Well, Dr. Exactly.
1: Hill, thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing your, your expertise on cognitive performance and, um, and how the brain works and how you can actually shape your brain to uh, do more uh, and be better in, in various areas of your life. Um, feel free to give our listeners any parting piece of guidance, um, best way they can share you online, and maybe have a little bit of a bonus for them too.
0: Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, in terms of finding me online, the best place is probably Twitter at AndrewHillPhD. You can also find me on the websites uh, TrueBrain, T R U Brain.com, or Peak Brain, which is at PeakBrainLA.com. Uh, and I really would love to hear, you know, individuals' brain challenges, success stories, individual quirks, because brains are so unusual that I always learn from every individual I work with. So, I'd love to hear if you have a quirky brain or a interesting brain that you're trying to get a handle on. In terms of a bonus, uh, we did prepare some coupons for you. I, I actually talked to the TrueBrain operations guys and, of course, at PeakBrain here, we also generated the same coupon for two different locations. So at TrueBrain, you can use the coupon, oddly enough, Productivity is the, is the coupon, and that's a 25% off your first true brain order. And we also uh, set up the coupon Productivity for PeakBrain if you would like a brain map, a quantitative EEG. We will give you a twenty-five percent discount on a, on a brain map as well. So, a little taste of some more advanced techniques and you know uh, technologies nice. people is, can imagine. is that in L.A. where you can get that done? Yeah, Peak Brains in L.A. Um, we're opening up one in St. Louis this summer. I have um, a little branch that's opening up in Portland, Oregon as well, uh, basically now. And so we're, we're we're gradually popping up throughout the country and eventually the world over the next year. But right now, you'd have to come to uh, L.A portland or uh orange county to get your brain mapping done
1: well thanks again and we'll be sure to put all that in the show notes and this is going to be the productivity forward slash 82 so if people okay. are interested in the resources there we can we can do it but thank you dr hill i i really appreciate you, you coming on and talking with us
0: yeah my pleasure zachary thanks for having me